during this season of Lent, uh, we're reading a number of Psalms. As you can see there, we're going to be reading Psalm 38 this morning. Uh, Lent's a time for us to think more carefully about confession and repentance as we think about what the cross means, why Christ had to come and die. And so we're using these Psalms sort of as a way to frame and to think about our own repentance um, unfortunately, due to space issues, we couldn't print it there, so you just have to listen very carefully, or of course, if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, feel free to open it uh, as, uh, and read along as Carla comes and reads it for us. Carla. Psalm 38, a psalm of David, a petition. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have pierced me, and your hand has come down upon me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. My bones have no soundness because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. All my longings lie open before you, O Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pounds. My strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. Those who seek my life set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin. All day long they plot deception. I'm like a deaf man who cannot hear, like a mute who cannot open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear, whose mouth can offer no reply. I wait for you, O Lord. You will answer, O Lord my God. For I said, do not let them gloat or exalt themselves over me when my foot slips. Well, we're going to turn our attention uh, more fully to the scriptures now. We're in a series uh, in the book of 1 Samuel. uh, And the theme of 1 Samuel is is really this. uh, Yahweh is king. God is king. And and specifically today as we look at what's happening when they crown their first king, uh, the King Saul, uh, we we learn more fully about how God is actually in charge of this, how he's working uh, in in the background, in the foreground, in all sorts of ways. Uh, Our scripture reading is on the back, not just middle panel, but beside the middle panel, too. It's from 1 Samuel 9, a couple of verses, and then I neglected to include it, but most of the back panel is chapter 10. So a few verses from 1 Samuel 9, and then most of, uh, and then uh, all of 1 Samuel 10. Megan is going to come and read this for us, and then we'll take some time to think about it together. Megan, if you would come now. First Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, 15 to 17. And then chapter 10. There was a man in Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zear, son of Bechorah, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. 
Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He will save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be the prince over his heritage. When you depart from me this today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelza, and they shall say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go up on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeah Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what to do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied with them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? 
And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they, des- and they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. All right, we're going to spend some time uh, reflecting on this text together. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with uh, the stories of how famous kings and rulers got started, like the story of King Arthur magically pulling the sword from the stone when, when no other knight, no other person in England could. There, there was something about Arthur, right, that marked him out. He, he was he was magical. He, this, this is the, the once and future king of England. Once he pulled the sword from the stone, everyone acknowledged him as king. Or the story of Genghis Khan, if you've heard of that. He was born into this poor, destitute family. They'd been kicked out of their tribe. uh, And and he made himself, he was like this self-made man. He made himself into a great warrior and warlord. You know, eventually built this this huge empire from nothing. The the stories of our great kings uh, of the human world, great kings and queens, often highlight their almost mythic qualities. Whether it's their bravery, or uh, their ability as a leader, or a warrior, or, or some special and particular way that they became a king or a queen. The human stories we have of, of Arthur and Genghis Khan and Napoleon and the Roman Caesars and the Egyptian pharaohs and so on, they're, they're very different from what we have in front of us today. Because at first glance, Saul does seem to fit the, the, the picture of a king that we have in our minds. He's tall, he's handsome, he's strong, he's from a reasonably wealthy family. But the way this story is written, the way the scriptures relate it to us, make it clear there's another actor, another power at work. Because this is not a story of Saul seizing power, building a kingdom from scratch, from his own strength and wits and wisdom. He's not touched by magic. He's not from a long lost line of kings and we've recently rediscovered, you know, them or whatever. No, no. This is a, a theological story of how God is at work. In a small kingdom, far from the center of power, yes, but amongst his people. Saul becomes king because God is at, God is at work. God the king is appointing a ruler for his chosen people. Now, if you read all of chapter 9, which we skipped over our kind of chunks of it, there are all these earthy details. There's donkeys that have run away. There's a son who's kind of doing this ordinary work on behalf of his father. But but really, in all of this, what we're going to see is that God is at work in the midst of our everyday affairs and activities. His kind providence is, is working to rescue his people and to care for them. But I think most importantly, and we'll end here today, or on this, on this point later on, is that we get our first good look at this, this flawed, but still anointed king of Israel. And we get, begin to get a picture, a sense, of what Jesus the king is gonna look like when he comes to rescue his people. Uh, but I'm gonna give you four broad categories I wanna work with. We're gonna kinda summarize th- this long text in these sections. First, we're gonna talk about God working quietly. And then we're gonna talk about God working in Saul. And then we're going to talk about God working publicly, the whole casting of lots thing. And then finally, what I call the search for a king. 
So chapter 9 opens with this description of Saul's family line. He's the son of a man named Kish. A few ancestors are listed in the scriptures. None are notable. We don't know anything about them. We do learn, though, that Saul is a Benjamite. And that's interesting because a careful, thoughtful, historically informed Israelite would have known the king wasn't supposed to come from Benjamin. The king was supposed to come from Judah. That was the prophecy. And additionally, at the end of Judges, which is the book right before 1 Samuel, the Benjamites, they went to war with all the other tribes. It's a longer story than that. But basically, thousands of Benjamites die. And so here, with the choice of a Benjamite king... We kind of see God at work doing God things. Because often through the scriptures, God works through weakness, not strength. He chooses things that are not to overthrow the things that are. So Saul is not from the prophesied tribe. In fact, he's from now what is right now the least of all the tribes. But God is going to still work through him. Now we also find out Saul's father Kish was wealthy. And we find out that Saul was handsome. The word, the Hebrew word for handsome is, is this word good. As in, he makes a good impression. Or he's well formed. He, he's good. He's easy on the eyes, you know, we might say. But then, so it says, the narrator says he's handsome. But for good measure, he goes on and says, no, no, you don't, he's not just handsome. He was the handsomest man in all of Israel. This guy was the best. Mr. Israel, you know, the, the, all the beauty pageants. And he's not just handsome. He's taller than everyone else. The narrator saying, no one's as tall, no one's as handsome, no one's as strong as Saul. It's like the Gaston song, you know, from Beauty and the Beast. Like the narrator is almost like singing his praises. Like, look at this guy. Doesn't he look like a king? He's the biggest and the strongest and the handsomest. Now this is not the way God usually works. He doesn't usually choose the biggest and the strongest and the handsomest. When it comes to King David, you know, a number of chapters later, he's handsome but he's not big and strong, especially like his brothers. When Samuel goes to meet the family, he looks at David's older brother and like, this is the guy. And God specifically says, no, not only is he not the guy, but I don't look at outward appearance. I judge on the heart. So almost despite his looks, not because of them, despite his height, not because of his height, Saul will still be chosen. Now, if you look down at verse 15 in chapter 9, God speaks to Samuel and promises to send him a man from Benjamin. But Samuel doesn't know his name. He doesn't know what he looks like, doesn't know he's looking for this, you know, devilishly handsome man. Uh, But God says, I'm going to bring someone from Benjamin to where you are. Now, how does God accomplish that? Well, between verses 3 and 14, again, we didn't read this, but I'll give you the quick summary. What happens is Kish's donkeys get lost. They wander away or whatever. They were free-range donkeys. And so Kish tells Saul, hey, take one of the servants, go wander around the countryside, you know, wherever donkeys normally go, go look for them. And that's what they do for like, you know, for 12 verses or whatever. They, they, for a few days, they're, they're traveling the countryside asking everyone, you know, have you seen our donkeys? And, and they're about to head home when the servant realizes, oh, we're right beside this town. And this town has a man of God in it, aka Samuel. And maybe, maybe he can help us. Maybe he's heard something. Maybe God has told them something. And so that's why they're headed to Samuel's house when we kind of get back uh, into the story in uh, verse 14. Now, doesn't that strike you as kind of ordinary? I mean, not the farm animals part. Most of us aren't, don't wander around looking for animals anymore. But this is just run of the mill agrarian Israelite life. It doesn't feel like God is at work. And I think unless we had the commentary of 1 Samuel, we wouldn't know that this sort of accidental run-in, you know, accidental in quotes, uh, between Samuel and Saul is anything more than that, anything more than coincidence. 
But if you look at verse 16, it's much more than coincidence. The reason that God is bringing Saul to Samuel is because he's heard the cry of his people. And he's raising up a king to deliver them. In other words, the ordinary actions of an ordinary farmer looking for ordinary animals on an ordinary Israelite afternoon... It's all being worked together in response to a cry for mercy from the people of God. Now, we call this action by God uh, providence. It's a theological word, providence. What does providence mean? Let me give you the Westminster Confession definition. Are you ready? It's God directing, regulating, and governing every creature, action, and thing from the greatest to the least. Now, that sounds very grandiose, very wonderful. But the confession goes on to explain, very helpfully, I think, the normal way God works, the confession says, is through ordinary means. Now, what are ordinary means? Everyday life stuff. Donkeys getting lost, you know, uh, teenage or maybe, uh, you know, what, 20-something sons being sent to go rescue them. Just sons doing what their fathers ask of them on the farm. Servants who recognize the town. Remember, oh, doesn't a man of God live here? Behind all of these very ordinary things... God is sort of working to accomplish his will. It's called providence. Now, when you begin to think about providence, one of the feelings that some of you may have is, is you might feel threatened by it. When you, when you think, well, if there is a divine being who is in control of everything that is, that, that all of life is ordered to these specific ends, maybe that feels intimidating or threatening or fatalistic, you know, or, or something like that. To illustrate this objection, Tim Crider, who's a, is an essayist, He was commenting on a terrible shooting in a daycare, but he wrote this, and I quote, If there is some divine plan that requires my survival and the deaths of all those children in daycare, then I respectfully decline to participate, end quote. It's an understandable objection, Tim Kreider, not a a Christian, not not a believer. If God controls everything, then what about all the bad things? It's a fair question. What I can tell you is what's illustrated here is that God's providence is bent towards being a warm, merciful providence. Why does he bring Saul to Samuel? The text says it's because he's being merciful. He's heard the cry of his people. This isn't a power move to show what he can do. It's a merciful move. God's moved by pity. I know that doesn't answer all your questions, or or mine. Why does God's providence allow for mass shootings? Why does that allow for terrible forms of cancer? Uh, we, We aren't told except to return to the Westminster Confession, that in just many cases, God allows these ordinary means to run their course. Doesn't mean you'll have to like it, just means that's what happens. But what we see here is God's providence over donkeys and over sons on farms. It's it's bent towards mercy and pity and compassion. So God's working very kind of quietly at the beginning of this story, using these ordinary means to bring about his will. But here's the question for us. Do you believe that about your life? Most of us have pretty normal lives, pretty normal responsibilities. We eat the same thing for breakfast, like most days or whatever. Yet to believe in providence means believing that God is giving, gave you the life circumstances you have right now, because that's the place and that's how he's working on you. Somehow in the midst of your life, going to your work, loving your neighbors, playing with your kids, if you have them, making your food in your kitchen, that's how God is at work in your life. Feels quiet, feels slow, feels careful, all those things. That's how he's shaping you. Just as he shapes these grander events of history, like Saul arriving in this random Israelite town to be ordained as king. 
Okay, let's talk about part two, God working in Saul. So Samuel meets Saul on the road, and uh, they have a private dinner, and they, they talk. This is the end of chapter 9. Again, we didn't read all this. You can go read it if you like. But Saul ends up sleeping over on Samuel's roof. That's not, it wasn't an insult. That's just where the guest room was. You know, in those days, you just kind of go sleep up top. And uh, the next day, they wake up. Sam, uh, Saul's about to leave with his servant, and Saul tell, Samuel tells Saul. I get these, going to get these mixed up a lot. Samuel tells Saul, tell your servant to go on ahead. We need to have a private conversation. And this is where 10, 1, uh, chapter 10, verse 1 picks up. That Samuel takes a flask of oil and anoints Saul, telling him, God has made you prince over Israel, and that Saul will save the people from their enemies. It's interesting language, and I want to point it out. Saul is anointed prince over the people. Now, if there's a prince... That means there's a king. The, the king, the, the prince's father would be the king. Prince implies a lot of authority, a lot of power, but not absolute authority and not absolute power. There is one over the prince who can overrule the prince. In the same way, if you look at the end of verse 2, chapter 10, Samuel tells Saul, God has appointed him prince over his, that's God's, heritage. So it's not Saul's people, they, they, they won't ever belong to him, the land doesn't really belong to Saul, that, that's God's too. Saul will be a ruler of Israel, but he'll be sort of an under-ruler. In 1644, Samuel Rutherford, a Presbyterian minister, by the way, can't let that one go. Samuel Rutherford wrote a document called Lex Rex, and if you're a, a lawyer type, you'll, you'll have heard about this. It was a political and legal document outlining why a king should be subject to the law. Lex Rex. So, and, 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 and it's basically roughly translated, the law of kingship or the law and the prince. Now this is really important, it's monumental in, in political legal history, because before that, the way that the world normally operated was Rex Lex, which was the king is law. Whatever the king says is the law. But, you know, Rutherford's document and things that were changing in Britain and Western Europe or whatever, it was changed the way they view, viewed monarchs. They were kings under a law of the people. And it's clear here that the, that the Israel is operating not according to Rex Lex, but according to Lex Rex. There's a spiritual law that governs the kingship. The king of Israel, not a king like all the other kings, not, not a pharaoh who can do whatever he wants and is regarded as some sort of demigod or whatever. This is a king under God's authority. Now, we aren't told what Saul thinks about all this. His response isn't recorded. But the last thing Samuel says to Saul is kind of interesting. He says, three things are about to happen, and that will prove that God is behind this. And so basically, Samuel is showing Saul. He's giving proof to Saul. This isn't just an old priest, an old, an old judge who's getting a bit delusional. Samuel hasn't gone rogue, just anointing people all over the place. No, no. Samuel is acting on behalf of God. And, and basically, Saul, Samuel says, here's how you can be confident three things are going to happen. The first is, as soon as he leaves, he's going to meet two men. They're going to tell him where his donkeys went and give him a message from his father. And then he'll meet three men, all holding different stuff on the way to Bethel. They will give you two loaves of bread. That's the second sign. And the third sign, once you go past the Philistine garrison, you know, walking on the road, Gibeath Elohim, you'll meet a group of prophets. And the Spirit of God will, will rush upon you, the text says. It'll change your heart so that you will join them and prophesy with them. Now, before we look at what happened, I want to give a couple thoughts about these signs. 
First, these signs are not bland generalizations like one might find, you know, in a, a fortune cookie or a horoscope, like a dream you have will come true. It's like, well, that could mean anything, you know, or serious trouble will find you. Like, uh, no, th- th- these aren't those kind of signs. These are very specific signs. They're impossible to set up ahead of time, particularly the, the third sign, which the text focuses on. See, Saul doesn't just meet a group of prophets, which maybe you could arrange that if you were very crafty. No, Saul will be transformed when he meets the prophets. He's going to act like someone else. How do you control that? The nature of these signs is divine. This is God proving to Saul that that God has called Saul to be king. Second, these signs, though quite impressive, it's like, wow, that's pretty cool. They're ultimately subject to God's word and authority. What is Saul supposed to do after he received these signs? If you look at verse eight, he's like, head to Gilgal, this other town, and wait there for Samuel. And when Samuel comes, Samuel will make offerings and look carefully. He will instruct Saul on what Saul is to do. So basically, the work of the Spirit, these miraculous signs, um, will, will work, will point to and work in conjunction with the Word of God. So these signs, they're intended to give Saul confidence. This is what God is doing. You know, God's Word from Samuel is gonna come true. And this is what happens. The text says this is what happens. In verse 11, uh, Saul joins the prophets in verse 10. In verse 11, everyone who knew Saul beforehand, they're astonished. Like, wow, this guy has really changed a lot. Something has come over him. It becomes a saying. Like, it's like this, like, slang. Like, is Saul among the prophets? Like, who can believe it? Well, what what changed? Well, in verse 9, it says that God gave Saul another heart. That Saul was changed on the inside. And in verse 10, it says the spirit of God rushed upon Saul. And that's a phrase used across the Old Testament in the book of Judges a number of times, actually, which says God is about to work powerfully through an individual, the shy country boy Saul, you know, from the backwoods of Benjamin. He's prophesying with the prophets like something is different about this guy. So God has sent the signs. He worked by his spirit and by providence to confirm Saul as king. Now, what in the world does this mean for us? You're like, I'm not a king, not a queen, I'm not in line for any throne that I know of. What am I supposed to do with all this? Well, the scriptures are clear that God still leads and guides and directs his people. So what do we see here from how God is doing that with Saul that might apply to us? Well, the first thing I would say is sometimes God does do extraordinary things to help us understand what we are to do. If you read the book of Acts, it happens a bunch of times. God sends dreams. He sends prophecies. He sends visions. He sends storms. Sometimes he sends his people signs to make us go one way or another. But Acts is not necessarily uh, prescriptive, not necessarily normative. It more described what happened. For most of us, the, si- the signs fall under what I would earlier called the normal means, the ordinary means of providence. That is, God normally works through things that feel quite ordinary. He directs us by everyday stuff. So, for instance, you're trying to figure out what job you should take. It is pretty likely that God will work through an HR department and a job posting and an interview process and references or whatever. That's the, those are the ordinary means that God works through. That's the sign he's giving you. They offered you a job. That's the sign. You know, is he limited to that? Of course not. That's just normally how he works. Those are the ordinary means. Let's say you're trying to figure out, should I go back to school and, and get a master's or something? Well, like, did you apply to the program? Did, 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 they let, did they let you in? Did they accept you? Can you afford it? You know, can your family deal with whatever the stress? God normally works through ordinary means. Now, 
what if you think God has sent me something supernatural? God has, has indicated I should do something different. Uh, that by some means, he said, do something out of the ordinary. Well, the test offered here is the test of God's word. Are you being directed towards something that agrees with God's will? God will not send you a sign that will lead you to do something sinful. James tells us God does not tempt us. So if you think God sent you a sign to like steal money from your company because they're corrupt anyways and they're not going to miss it. That's just, that's just not the case. There's not a sign that's going to lead you to do that. And I know it's not always as straightforward as this, but the word of God is a test for any sign. Now, what if the sign isn't covered in the Bible? Well, then I would say it's, it's likely just a matter of wisdom. And if you're going to try to understand, is this sign from God or not? Uh, the reason we know in this text that the men on the road, the group of prophets, the two loaves of bread, all those things were signs from God, is because God specifically told Saul and Samuel, these are signs. <laughs> Go look for them. These are signs. That's how we can trust them. That's what gives Saul confidence. We don't operate with that kind of confidence, that level of confidence. It's much harder for us to discern. Is this, is this God directing me or is it just, you know, kind of circumstance? We operate in like a twilight, not in the full light of day like Saul did. So I would submit to you this. The key word, if you're kind of like wondering or if you feel like, is God directing me? Is God leading me? The key word is humility and sort of an open-handedness. If you think God has sent you a sign to do something, and it's not sinful, you have the ability to follow it, all the other boxes are checked, just move forward with humility and the understanding that you might have gotten it wrong. <laughs> you, you may be misreading things. You may have misinterpreted things. But nevertheless, God still calls his people. He still directs them, sometimes miraculously like he does with Saul here. But let's move on and talk about part three, God working publicly. So, so far, Samuel knows, right? Saul should be king. Saul knows Saul should be king. But there remains the rest of the people, the, all the tribes. And, and if you look, it's like Saul didn't tell his uncle what was going on. Only, only Saul knows. And Samuel. So in verse 17, Samuel calls all the people together at Mizpah. And then there's a casting of lots. But before they do it, Samuel actually opens with a little reproof. A little, a little rebuke of the people. He reminds them, hey, God's been rescuing you all the way along. He's cared for you. Remember how he saved you from the Egyptians? Remember how he saved you from, you know, these people and those people, everyone who's attacked you? And Samuel sort of reminds the people, hey, it's partially the reason we're all here today is because you rejected God. Now, why does Samuel do this? Why kind of like ruin a good day with like this kind of sour note? Well, even though a a king is going to be crowned, Israel has to remember the larger story they are in. Kings, kings are going to come and go. God will remain. And and their disposition towards God, which we talked about last week, uh, they need to remember that. They arrived at this day partially because they would not have God for their king. And they shouldn't quickly move past that. But anyways, the tribes assemble, the casting of lots begins. Now, we don't actually know exactly how they cast lots. Um, most, most kind of smart Bible people think it was probably like marked stones that were drawn out of a bag. You know, in this case of the tribes, you know, Judah gets their stone and Dan gets their stone or whatever. And they, and they draw one out. But we, we don't exactly know how they, how they cast, dot, uh, cast lots. But Samuel knows who, who should be king. But he doesn't want the people to take their, his word for it. He wants them to know God is the one behind all this. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot, the L-O-T, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Which basically says, uh, Providence rules over random chance. <laughs> just as, as, like, like throwing a dice, God is in control of that just as much as he's in control of everything else. 
And of course, this process plays out. Benjamin is chosen by Lot. The clan of the Matrites is chosen by Lot. And eventually Saul, son of Kish, is selected. And it's sort of like this moment, like if you've ever been to like a fair or like they're doing some sort of prize drawing at the front and the person at the microphone is like, the winner is Saul, son of Kish. But like everyone like looks around like, where is he? And they like repeat it again. Maybe he didn't hear the first time. And just like the donkeys, Saul can't be found. Now, was it humility? Did Saul lose faith? Was he scared? Was he shy? We don't ever know. There's no motive attributed. But I would say it's at least a mark of growth, a mark of maturity for Israel, that when Saul can't be found, they don't just like, hey, let's pull another name from that. You know, maybe we got it wrong or whatever. No, no, what they do in verse 22 is they like pause and they inquire of the Lord. What are we supposed to do? And God's like, he's like over in the baggage, you know, hiding or whatever. But the people accept the casting of the lots as God's will for the nation. And at the end of verse 24, the people are all happily shouting, you know, long live the king, long live the king. And, and through the end of the story, though, the final verse tells us not everyone was thrilled with Saul's appointment. Some despised him. We're like, this guy, why did we, why, why did God choose this guy? He has no chance of saving the people. That's what they said. Now, a couple lessons here, I think, about how God works publicly. And the first is this, God uses public means to confirm his will. Even things that look like chance are ways of God making known what he wants to happen. Now, in a Presbyterian church, which we are in, surprise if you didn't know we were Presbyterian, uh, part of our polity actually depends on this principle. That elders and deacons are not appointed by, by the pastor or, you know, by someone else. They're selected by the will of the people through, through voting. Now, just like in a democracy, it's easy to wonder, are the people, or is the, is the mass of people, are they best positioned to make the wisest choices? That's not an insult to you, by the way. Just sort of wondering out loud. But look, unless there's obvious sin or collusion of some kind, in a Presbyterian church, we accept the vote of the people of the church as the will of God. That we believe God is working through these democratic means, even if we know all the reasons that democracies, you know, tend to get messed up. In the same way, when our elders, when we work together on tricky issues, the five of us, we don't always see eye to eye. Sometimes we have to vote because we can't reach consensus. And together we accept, hey, if I get outvoted on this, the vote of the elders we take as the will of God. Again, unless there's obvious uh, obvious mistake or sin. And my point is that our very system of church government depends on these sort of public means to lead his people. He guides and directs, we believe, by his providence, and we entrust ourselves to that providence, knowing he's trying to love us and care for us and lead us, and God uses these public means, even throwing dice, you know, like here, to, to lead and to guide his people. But the second thing we learn is not everyone will agree with God's choice. Sometimes God will lead and direct in a way that's objectionable to some. Some people are not going to see it. They're going to openly question Now, it's very interesting to me that Saul doesn't take it personally. That very last sentence, in the face of this this grumbling, this opposition, says Saul held his peace. And if you come back next week, we're going to talk about this. Saul goes off and wins a battle. And some in Saul's circle are like, hey, all those guys who grumbled against you, let's go get them. Let's kill those guys. And Saul refuses to do that as well. This understanding of leadership and the will of God is important. Not everyone's going to understand. Not everyone's going to agree. 
And to some people, the choices of a church uh, or of a person are, are foolish and are despisable. And a wise leader, a wise person, understands it's their responsibility to follow God and not get too caught up in either arguing with or fighting with those who see it a different way. Eventually we find out who was following God. Eventually the truth is going to come to light. Eventually either Saul will be proven out as God's choice for king or he'll be revealed as a fraud and a trickster or whatever. But to his credit, I think here, Saul doesn't flex his power. He doesn't get people together and be like, yeah, let's go, let's go kill all those people who, who didn't like me. He just goes back to Gibeah, starts setting up his kingdom uh, with a couple men of valor. But God uses these public means, casting of lots, to confirm his choice of Saul as king. Okay, now let's talk about part four. We'll kind of wrap up with this. The search for a king. This has been sort of a winding journey. God worked privately, all the donkeys and all that stuff. God worked in Saul through the signs. God worked publicly through the casting of lots. All to this end of getting a king established. And what we see in the beginning of Saul's kingship has some signs that point us toward the kind of king Jesus will be. This is the very first king of Israel. Long live the king. Now, in what ways does Saul foreshadow or to teach us of Jesus, the final, the true king of Israel? I want to point out a bunch of things. We'll kind of go rapid fire through them. If you go back to the start of chapter 9, we see a distinct difference between Saul and Jesus. Saul's tall, handsome, from a good and wealthy family. He looked like a king. In contrast, when you read the prophet Isaiah, we find out Jesus had no beauty, no majesty that would have attracted anyone to him. Isaiah says, there's no one who crossed Jesus' path and would conclude, oh, this guy is going to be the one to save Israel. Saul looked like a king. Jesus didn't look at all like a king. Yet, both Saul and Jesus are from places that others despised. No one would have thought a king would come from Benjamin. No one would have thought a Messiah would come from Nazareth. Both men came from places that were quite unlikely. The word to Samuel about Saul is quite striking, strikingly similar to the word given by angels to Zechariah and some others about Jesus. Both are sent to save the people from the hands of their enemies. And both are sent, both are called and anointed as a response of mercy from a God who loved his people. Speaking of anointing, both Saul and Jesus were anointed, but under far different conditions. Saul is anointed by the most powerful man in Israel to be a king. And Jesus was anointed with Mary, a woman despised by the ruling powers, and anointed for his death and his burial. In Saul's case, the Spirit of God rushed upon him and changed his heart. In the case of Jesus, the Spirit descended on him like a dove at the baptism, attended him, but he had no need of being changed. His heart was already pure. Perhaps most strikingly, when Saul's big moment came, when the lots were cast and all the people were were looking for him, ready to receive him, Saul hid. He had to be searched out. He had to be he had to be brought forward to be crowned. And in contrast, when Jesus' moment came, he was ready. He did not hide from it, though he was not to be crowned with metal and jewels, but with thorns. And people would shout for Jesus as well, but not for him to live long and prosper but for him to die quickly. Men would despise and reject Jesus, but they were not some small minority off somewhere in the corner. They were a majority. And they would get their way. They would hurl their insults, not in sort of whispered back corners, but in the broad light of day, mocking of Jesus, even as he hung upon the cross. Can this man save us? And Jesus did more than hold his peace. He extended peace to those who killed him. He asked God to forgive them. 
See, Saul was established a king under Lex Rex. He ruled as a prince of Israel under the law of God. But Jesus, even though he was the word, though he had given the law, he died under Lex Rex, dying under the curse of the law that all the lawbreakers might be forgiven. On the day when Christ died, there were no men of valor gathered around him. But he hung between thieves and sinners. And so we understand that Saul is both a type of Christ and a foil for Christ. We see in Saul some of what Christ was to be and also the, some of the opposite of what Christ was. But in the providence of God, the unfolding of the great rescue plan comes to its fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus. I told you earlier, providence doesn't answer all of our hard questions. But at the cross, we do understand that the providence of God was finally and unflinchingly bent toward suffering on behalf of all the people. It was bent towards life being rescued from death, of sin being forgiven, of death being defeated, and of life everlasting extended to all people. We understand that's where God's providence ultimately led. See, a king is coming to rescue Israel, and his name would be Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks for this text that we understand more of how you're leading and how you're guiding, how you're ruling as a king over your people. And we thank you that ultimately Jesus was the true king to rule over his people, not to push them down or to stomp on them, but to serve them, to love them and to save them. Help us understand how you lead and how you guide, but mostly help us understand who Jesus was and who he is. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.